Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Good evening, everyone, and or good afternoon, depending on where you are. Uh, and welcome back to part number two um, of this overview, this six-part overview of Jewish history. If you recall last week, so we looked at this as our entire line of Jewish history, and we uh, noted that what we're looking at here are 500-year blocks. And uh, I'll reiterate again what I said last week, and that is that those 500-year blocks are not made up by me. They emerge naturally from Jewish history, and last, because every 500 years or so, the Jewish people go through a kind of transitional phase to another key project of their continuum. And if you would recall, last week, we did this period here, minus 500 to zero, and we are calling that Bayit Sheni. So let's use the English shows to confuse people. That we're calling the Second Temple period. So tonight I'm actually going to be covering, we're going to be talking about a period that goes from approximately 0 to 500. An absolutely packed period of Jewish history, as you can imagine. And uh, we'll be doing well if we get through three quarters of what we need to remember we're only doing headlines. Headlines. And there are details within details. Every door you open is an ocean of information in Jewish history. But these are the things that it would be reasonable for you to know when discussing this period in any detail slightly below the surface. And what they do is they allow us to uh, come to terms with how Jewish history moves forward. What we're going to look at first is we're going to look at the interior Jewish story of this period first, and then we'll see how this is embedded in world history. So stay tuned for this because it's going to get interesting, I hope. This period, 0 to 500, is called in Jewish history. What do we call this period? doesn't matter whether you're religious or academic or secular or, or not even Jewish or Jewish or from within the Pope, whatever you are, you're going to call this period 0 to 500. You're perfect. You're going to call it the Talmudic. Now, there's a lot more going on than just the creation of the Talmud, but it takes its name because of the development of the key formative project of the Jewish people during this period, which is really the rise of Judaism after some very, very catastrophic events that we're going to look at in more detail. Now, here we go. I'm now going to zoom in on this, <laughs> no pun intended, and we are going to look at that period called the Talmudic. And the Talmudic, as we said, is going to go from approximately zero to 500. We're going to divide that up into centuries. So, and remember, I'm using the common secular counting because that's very easy for us to follow. And we're going to call this the Talmudic period. All right, here we go. Put your seatbelts on because it's about to get very, very packed. 
if you recall from last week, how many sub-periods did we say there were in the second temple period? Yeah, yeah, exactly. The answer is not four. The answer is four. Yeah, very good. So, therefore four. And tonight, what we're going to focus on, and don't get confused, take it nice and slow, is that we're going to see this period predominantly in terms of two separate periods, two major sub-periods of the Talmudic. A lot of this is familiar to I know, so we're not going over any new breaking ground here for many of you. But we are going to go into detail in a moment. But the first thing we need to understand is that the Talmudic period is divided up into two sub-periods. The first goes to round about here, round about 200. So from 0 to 200. And that period is called, and I will explain all these terms. So no one needs to sit there going, Ah, oh, he hasn't explained the terms. I will explain the terms during the course of this talk. But we need to know first, this period 0 to 200 is called the Tanaitic. It's called the Tanaitic. And predominantly, we'll look at this more in detail soon, but the, because the sages living, the sages of Israel, the great inheritors and transmitters of the great Jewish spiritual traditions of the Jewish people, were living in this phase and were called Tanaim and they composed collectively a document which is the Mishnah. It's going to get edited here. We're going to look at that a little later. But that is the Tanaitic period. And the second of those periods goes from around about here to around about 500. And we call that in Jewish history the Amoraic and the reason, the reason I'm showing you those two sub-periods is because when you're sitting around at that fancy dinner party and the terms the Tanaitic and the Amoraic come up, you don't want to look like you don't know what you're talking about. These terms have meaning and we're going to explain them. But overall, I just need us to be aware now and then park this information that we're going to be dealing with two sub-phases, the Tanaitic and the Amoraic that comprise, that comprise the Talmudic. Everybody follow that so far? Now, don't panic, but I'm going to wipe this off. And we're going to zoom in on the Tanaitic. We're still just contextualizing ourselves to make sure that we know exactly where we are. And the Tanaitic period, as I said, is a period of approximately how long? 200 years, just making sure our studio audience is awake. 200 years. We're zooming in on the Tanaitic. We'll call that 100. So we can actually call this 50, 150, and we can even do 10, 20, 30, 40, 60, 70, 80, 90, 2, 3, 4, 6, 7, 8, 9. Good. If you would recall, at the end of last week, Herod died. Herod was a Idumean descendant king. He was a uh, sucked up to the Romans massively, married into the Hasmonean family to give himself legitimacy, ruled 
very, very despotically over the people of Israel uh, for some decades. But by the time we get to zero, he's no more. And his sons are more or less vying for control. And what we need to realize, it's important to realize, first of all, is that I'm going to do another picture on the board. Everybody okay with that? People like pictures? What's this? Well, you know what that is. That is the land of Israel. Of course it is. And in a very broad sense, what we want to understand is this, is that the Romans, based on earlier demarcations, I know, based on earlier demarcations, but the Romans had more or less divided this entire area into different provinces. So, for example, and these provinces have meaning in geography and politics, and we don't always think of them today, but in the ancient world, this is very much how this area was understood. The entire area as a whole was known as Eudea, which is Judea. But Judea was only really one province. That, of course, was in the center here, around, you know, involving Jerusalem and so on. So this is Eudea. But then down here you had Idumea. Further north of Eudea you had Samaria. And then further north you had the Galilee. And on the other side of the River Jordan you've got Perea and so on. And you've got other Roman provinces that are also based on uh, some of the demarcations that had already been made by the Seleucids even before the Romans. But that's the basic idea of these provinces. And the sons of Herod are vying for uh, uh, control and rule in different ways. But the general story, the general story of the first century here, and I've got to tell you, and I always make this remark, and people don't believe me, but it's true. We could meet here, like this, every week for a year before we really, really delved into the depths of everything we know about this century. This century is absolutely packed. In fact, it's its own subject in Jewish history called first century Palestine, which, by the way, is a bit of a misnomer because there's no Palestine at this point. What we really should call it is first century Judea. But everything in first century Judea, we know a lot about this era and every single year is packed with information. So what we're talking about now are the highlights that we would need to know. But the primary story... Actually, before I tell you that, I'm going to tell you something else because it's going to make sense. This is going to make it clearer. The Tanaitic period... has got some phases to it. And we're not going to give those phases names. I'm just going to show you some very, very important dates. And they're based on very terrible things that emerged from the Jewish people rebelling against the Romans. And the first of those, of course, is here. That's the first great revolt. And you've got another revolt here. But then you've got a great big daddy revolt here. And there's, so there's a phase to the Tanaitic period that is up to the first great revolt, which, of course, by the way, included the destruction of the temple. 
So there is the Tanaitic period up until the first great revolt that included the destruction of the temple. Then you've got a phase here that we're going to look at, which goes up to the great, great revolt of Bar Kokhba, which we're going to discuss. And then you've got the phase after Bar Kokhba. So that's important to understand in an overall sense, and we're going to unpack that a bit. But the basic story of this period here, these first few decades of the first century, is really the story of one horrible, disgusting Roman governor after another. You see, the Romans decided that they weren't going to have any more client kings in Judea. They weren't going to resurrect another Herod figure. They were going to let his sons have limited autonomy in some of the provinces, but they were not going to set up a Judean king over the whole area. They didn't think that any of Herod's sons were particularly worthy of that consideration, and that the Romans were then going to rule Judea directly, and by virtue of governors and procurators, and so on. And we have one horrible gov Roman governor in Judea after another. And the basic story is that the Herodian children are running around basically trying to do the right thing by the Romans. They're all vying for the Roman favour and so on. While these governors are exploiting the people and so long as quotas are met, then they know that the Romans are going to let them stay in control and whatever they send back to the Rome to fulfil their quota, then if a governor can exploit the people for more than that, then Matov, right? That's the, that's, the, that's the governor's profit. So we got really, really squeezed. And at the same time, restrictions were happening in relation to citizenship. I'm going to talk about that in a moment as well. But that's the basic story. One, a couple of examples that are worthy of talking about, even at this very superficial headline level, uh, which are really kind of outcomes of the Roman rule and the picture I've just described, would be the very, very famous census that's taken around the year 6. There is a census. And why did the Romans want to take a census of Judea? 100% because of tax. Because if you're going to expect a certain quota of taxation in gold, silver, goods from a place, you need to know how many people there are. And they took a census. And Jews have never liked being counted, even at the best of times, and especially not for the purpose of a fiscus Judaicus, a Jewish tax that's going to be put on the residents of Judea. So some historians want to tell us that, in fact, it was the census here that sparked what was going to become, later on in the century, the famous zealot movement, what we call the Kanaim, the zealots. Don't make the mistake of thinking that the zealots are some kind of broad monolithic movement. They were a very, very complex movement, which had a lot of different competing interests inside it. But they all agreed on one thing, and that is the Romans have to go. We're going to look at them a little more uh, shortly. So we start with the census, and that kicks off a level of resentment that never really goes away. We don't like the Romans. I know that we invited the Romans in half a century earlier, but now we really don't like them. <coughs> but that story increases and goes throughout the century. The other example I want to talk about, 
about Roman rule is the fact that around about here, Herod Antipas, one of Herod's sons, who was in charge of uh, the Galilee and Perea, this kind of area here, decided to build a new city. And what did he call his new city? And if you understand what he called it, you'll understand the whole vibe of this era. He called it Tiberius. Why did he call it Tiberius? He built this city on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And why did he call it Tiberius? Because Tiberius was the emperor. So you build a new city, you name it after the emperor. Classic thing for the Herodians to do. So, for example, so here we see in around about the year 20, uh, the founding of the city that's going to go and become Tiberius is going to play, play a very, very significant role in Jewish history uh, going forward. But uh, it really kicks off as a, as a major town here. All right. Uh, so that's the story. We've got Roman governors. And then something very unusual happens around here, around about the year 37, uh, in the years 37, 38, 39. And that is that there is a new emperor. And we know that Tiberius was succeeded by, well, let's find out. Tiberius was succeeded by one of the maddest kings, Caligula. Caligula, Gaius Caligula. And Gaius Caligula it comes, comes here. He comes uh, to the throne in Rome. He uh, is a psycho. There's no other way to put it. I mean, he's, uh, the, every Roman emperor was mad because you would be mad if uh, you ruled over an entire empire and you were basically worshipped as a god and your word was law. That's not exactly a good recipe for sanity. But amongst those, Caligula was particularly mad. Uh, but Caligula had a school chum that he went to school with who was a Jewish boy from Judea, a grandson of Herod, because Herod's family were all educated in Rome. And this young man, Agrippa, had gone to Rome and happened to find himself in the same class as Caligula, and they had become chums. So move forward a couple of decades, and Caligula becomes the Roman emperor. So he turns around, and he says to his old school chum, Agrippa, why don't you go back and become king? So for a short window here, we actually have a very, very significant and important figure called Agrippa, who in fact is a Judean king, not just a tetrarch or a ruler. And the more he's around, the more autonomy he is given. However, <laughs> it doesn't take long for, Claudia, for, for, for Caligula to be Caligula. And famously, in around the year 4041, Caligula decided that there was, he was not going to wait until he died before he would be worshipped as a god. Why wait? That can happen right now. And uh, so he decided that there would be a gold statue of himself placed in every major religious structure in the world. And that, of course, included the Temple of the Jews at Jerusalem. So he insisted on a statue of himself to be placed in the Holy of Holies. That decree sent the entire Jewish world, of course, into panic. And many, many delegations were sent to Caligula to get that rescinded. I'm going to come back and talk about what happened there in a moment. I'm going to now digress just back to here because I wanted to, we are just laying the groundwork really 
but laying important groundwork. I'm just going back here because I want to talk in this era here about the rising diaspora. Now, there's no question that the center of the Jewish world is still in Judea. And just so that we are clear where Judea is, that's the Mediterranean, as you would remember. So the land of Israel is here. And Rome is over here. So the center of the Jewish world is still very much in the land of Israel, on the eastern side of the Mediterranean. But we have a growing and impressive diaspora. And for uh, uh, a few very strong examples of that, um, uh, but none more impressive, really. We have a very strong community over here in Babylon. We have a very strong Jewish community in Rome that's very influential, pretty much like the Jewish community of the United States would be today in terms of within the, uh, in the heart of the superpower. Uh, but the most impressive Jewish community of the time, the New York of its day, is, of course, Egypt. Alexandria. So we have a very impressive uh, community, Alexandria. And, uh, but, but there are other dotted communities as well around here. We have a growing diaspora. And in fact, some independent kingdoms, uh, such as Adiebani over here, are actually converting to Judaism. Once again, we talk about this idea that this mythology that Jews never proselytized amongst other nations. During this period, some historians may be exaggerated, but want you to understand that there might have been as many as 10% of Roman citizens living right throughout the Roman Emperor who, Empire who would have thought of themselves as Jewish because they had become Jewish under the tremendous push of Jewish itinerants, sages, tradespeople, merchants to convert to this amazing religion called Judaism. And that's going to have consequences later on as well. Uh, but that, that is Helena of Ediebony. That is Helena during the time. We, we could give an entire talk about her. It's very, very difficult for me to give this talk without, I'm, I feel like I'm walking along a precipice and at any side we could fall into an ocean of detail. However, you're absolutely right. I mentioned Adiebony because Helena of Adiebony is someone who is involved in the very late Second Temple period in a number of ways. And I would encourage you to look into her. I think we've spoken about her when we've spoken about women in Jewish history and so on, a phenomenal figure. But here I'm focusing on Alexandria because Alexandria is big enough now, has like a million Jews and has hundreds and hundreds of shuls and so on and uh, very very although there are tensions within Alexandria between Jews that had Roman citizenship and Ro Jews that didn't uh, there was also and this will shock you a lot of Amaratsis going on right there's a lot of ignorance there's a lot of Jews who are very religious but they don't know any Hebrew they read the Bible in Greek and so on. we've got tensions with Greek-speaking Jews we've got Agrippa coming to the throne that's a whole other thing about how Egyptian Jewry reacts to uh, the Egyptian wider society reacted to that and caused a lot of tension but during this period where Caligula demanded that a statue of his be placed in the temple, we even have a delegation going, not just from Judea, uh, where Caligula, not Caligula, but Agrippa himself needed to go and get Caligula to rescind the decree, but even from Alexandria. And we have a very famous delegation from Alexandria that, of course, was headed by the religious leader of the community of Alexandria, who was, of course... Philo or Philo and we have spoken about Philo in the philosophy series and so on Philo wasn't just a philosopher he was also a diplomat and a politician and 
they basically went to Caligula and they said, you do realise, don't you, that if you put this statue in the temple, every Jew in the land of Israel, at least, if not in the world, are going to kill themselves before they let you do that. And Caligula's going, and? Not my problem. And he did not rescind the order, despite all of these entreaties. We have, still have, the immensely detailed recording called The Deputation to Gaius, written by Philo himself. Incredible document, which reads exactly as it would read today if a delegation went to a superpower to get a decree like that rescinded. However, as famously, famously, they made the statue in Damascus and they're carrying it to Jerusalem. And as they're on the way to Jerusalem, Caligula dies and the decree is rescinded. That's why his, the anniversary of his death, the 22nd of Shvat, basically his Yatzat was a Yom Tov, was celebrated as a festival by Jews for, for centuries after that. All right, but we're moving on. Now that we've set this groundwork, we set the groundwork. We've got uh, tensions growing in Judea because of the corrupt rule of governors. We've got a growing and restless diaspora. Uh, but really, we're going to jump to here because I'm going to jump to the year 66. Because in 66, all of this comes to a head. Now, I'm going to put a footnote here, and this is an interesting footnote. A lot of people, you know, in that famous discussion that I love having, and I've given a talk on this, that discussion about what era of Jewish history most resembles our own. So a lot of people want to say it's first century Judea, and they go, why? And they go, well, in first century Judea, the Jewish world was very, very factionalized. A lot of tensions and fighting, and we see that today. And they don't realize that the tensions within the Jewish world today, all those political divisions, and not just political, but religious divisions within the Jewish world today, are amateur-level kindergarten compared to what was going on here. Because this is something that looks much more like what we would see between you know, Shia and Sunni or Protestant and Catholic in the worst phases of their atrocities. First of all, as I mentioned last week, you've got the broad distinction between the Prushim, the Pharisaic factions who were led by the sages and rabbis of Israel who were predominantly interested with the Torah, the spiritual heritage of the Jewish people being at the center of their concerns. And you had the Tztukim, who were this priestly cult, this priestly elite who believed it was really all about the temple and the sanctity of the temple and so on. So that is a, and two entirely different visions of Judaism. And so that's going on broadly. But you've also got a number of other groups running around, depending on how they felt about the presence of the Romans. And we talked about the Kamein, we talked about the Zealots, but the Zealots themselves were divided up into different factions. You had moderate zealots, hardcore zealots, and the hardcore of the hardcore, who were actually known as the Sikari, who were going around assassinating collaborators, anyone who has collaborated with Rome. They believed that we're getting closer, many of them, not all of them, a lot of them believe we're getting closer and closer to the end of times, and the end of times means we're going to get rid of Rome, and we're going to have a war against Rome, and God's going to be on our side in that war against Rome. All we have to do is believe it. As well, you had people like the Essim, you had the Essenes, who were withdrawing themselves from culture, going out, hanging down by caves at the, uh, at the Dead Sea, writing their mystical scrolls, uh, smoking cannabis and eating mushrooms, whatever it is they're doing down at the Dead Sea, and 
Uh, and you've also got running around the Nazarenes, the early Christians that we, we will talk about hopefully before the end of the talk. So all of this is a powder keg. But in 66, it all comes to a head because in 66, the Romans, who, by the way, had already established a separate administrative capital, yeah, away from Jerusalem in the coastal town of Caesarea, and they decided that they would give uh, all the non-Jewish, the, all the Gentile citizens of Caesarea citizenship, Roman citizenship, which really meant something, uh, and the Jews not. Uh, the governor at the time, Florus, raided the temple in a very, very brutal and nasty manner. There were violations of synagogues and other places of worship throughout Judea. There seemed to be a definitive program, an anti-Jewish program, on behalf of the Roman uh, occupation of Judea. And it all exploded open. And the Jews of Jerusalem and then Judea revolted against Roman rule. And what revolting against Roman rule means... It didn't, uh, you know, they did, it's, it's not like they went out in their balcony and put out a free Judea flag or something. We're talking, they went and they wiped out the garrison, Roman garrisons that were in Jerusalem and caused a whole lot of mayhem. That then, uh, those reverberations then spread to Egypt and other close-lying communities. And then, of course, famously, Cestius Gallus, uh, takes an entire legion from Syria and marches in to Jerusalem and he is wiped out. He is wiped out by uh, Elazar Bashimon and the other guerrilla uh, leaders that are, oh, there are many, many different freedom fighting factions and they have this incredible victory against an entire Roman legion. What would that tell you? If you were sitting there, not sure which side of the fence you're going to sit on in this coming conflict, and you saw that, what would you then think? They're going to, well, you're either going to think, wow, God really is on our side. We're going to win this. Mashiach's going to come. It's, this is Gog or Magog. This is the end of days. We're going we're gonna to free Judea of the Romans, just like, just like the Hasmoneans did last week. Not last week, but just like the Hasmoneans did, they got rid of the Greeks. We're going to get rid of the Romans. Same story. And then you would have people that say, well, it may not go that way because what you might have actually done is kind of woken the dragon and it's going to be oi va voi for us now. And no one was sure which was it was going to go, but they did set up a provisional government. And that provisional government tried to have as many different faction leaders as it could on it. That government had within it some, uh, some people who tended more towards the zealot factions. Some people were peaceniks, and it had some moderates. The rabbis generally, led by Shimon ben Gamliel, who sat on the council of the provisional government of Judea, were more or less of the opinion... Uh, that if we had to, we could live under the Romans. It's better to live under the Romans than get wiped out. They weren't 100% sure that the people leading this rebellion were the sort of people for whom miracles would necessarily happen. The provisional government, uh, one of the things it needed to do was to uh, create defences because one thing for sure, one thing for sure was going to happen the Romans are coming. coming. So they have to shore up 
the defences, but primarily in the north. And they give that job to a very, very interesting individual. And we can't, if we're talking about Jewish history, can't not name this individual. He's extremely important. He, his name is uh, Yosef Ben Matityahu HaKohen. Uh, and, of course, we're going to know him as Josephus later on. But he's actually a, he's a priest, but he's given the job of uh, becoming basically the head of Northern Command. And that means that he's got to go round to different towns like Yotapata, like Gamla, like so on, these big towns in the north, and make sure that they're well fortified, that, they can, that they're well provided for, that they can hold out against any Roman incursion. They believe that it's not going to be so easy for the Romans to take the north of Israel. Before you even get to the south, I mean, it's not like it's the first time the land of Israel has been fought over. It's already been fought over many, many times. But they know that the first thing the Romans will have to do would be to capture Galilee. And that's not going to be easy. And they didn't make it easy. However, the emperor, and the emperor is, who is the emperor at the time of the Judean revolt? The first revolt. Nero. Nero. So Nero sends 60,000, so he sends six legions. That is a huge force. There was no mucking around. They were not going to allow this rebellion to succeed under any cost. He sent six legions under his most, the, probably the most efficient general in the entire Roman Empire, a dude called Vespasian. And Vespasian was a, an expert at breaking down fortresses through sieges. He had just blitzed Britain on behalf of the Roman Empire. He was basically in retirement. He was brought back from retirement and said, you're going to take this job. He took the job on and he came with his son Titus, who also commanded uh, another one or two legions. They come and they come through the north of Israel and it takes them a little time, but they do actually break all of the sieges in the north of Israel, including, of course, Yotapata, where Joseph bin Matityahu had been hiding. He surrendered himself to the Romans and convinced Vespasian and Titus that he was going to be someone worthy of keeping alive because he would be able to record all the conquests of the Romans of Judea. And it's because because of Josephus, partly, other sources as well, but mostly Josephus, that we have so much knowledge of the detail of all of this campaign. Eventually, and we don't have time to go into all of it, we've spoken about it in detail in other talks and so on, but if you're looking at the highlights, the mechanics are, they come through, they take the Galilee, they take some, and eventually, around about the year 68, thank you, Zalman, around about the year 68, they arrive in Jerusalem. And of course, they siege it. Now, Did the Judaism? sorry, Nero. Not that not that history knows of, <laughs> but um, who knows? Uh, it, 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 I'm aware that there are all sorts of claims about different emperors or their children, whatever that uh, that converted, but. Um, in, 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 a, in an objective history sense, we don't really have many documentations for that. Um, but that doesn't mean that didn't happen. But I'm only going according to, uh, you know, Lorraine or Inoraya, but I'm only going according to Morgan, for sure. We have documented by various sources. So, they are sieging 
Jerusalem. And that's really the point. With all of the difficulty that was going on there, by the way, of course, as the Romans were coming through, all the different zealot factions and freedom-fighting gangs and all the rest of it made their way to Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was going to be the intense powder keg of it all. And eventually Vespasian and Titus arrive there and they siege it. And it is during that siege that he has that famous, famous conversation with the spiritual leader of the age, the head of the Pharisaic faction, who is, of course, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. And Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai basically says to Vespasian, I think it's over for the temple, and I think it's going to be over for Jerusalem. However, it's definitely not over for the Jewish people, and I need a place to reconstruct the... uh, the spiritual and cultural life of the Jewish people, and Vespasian gives him the town of Yavna on the coast of Israel to do that. That is an immensely important conversation that happens in Jewish history because it's the beginning of the rebuilding of Jewish life after the uh, after the destruction. Because Vespasian and uh, goes is actually going to go back now to Rome to become emperor, and. Titus is going to finish the job in around the year 70. I want to make a point here because I I want to bring you in a little deeper into the history of this. We don't have time to go into a lot of detail on this. I'm really, it might seem like we're doing a lot of detail when you look at the board, but we're really only doing headlines. Uh, And those of you who are intimately familiar with this period will know that I'm only doing headlines. I'm picking out the most important things to show the mechanics of things. But what I do want to point out is this, on the level of detail, is that it's very tempting for us today to think of good guys and bad guys in history. Not just in history, but even today in the world. The world is very divided politically, and people think that we're the good guys, they're the bad guys, and that's it. And we sometimes forget how intimately connected enemies can be. It's not the case. It's not the case that it was the Jews and the Romans and there was no uh, intimate connection between them. To start with, Titus's second in command. Well, before we even get to that, Titus himself during the whole of the Judean campaign, was carrying on a love affair with Berenice, the sister of Agrippa II, so a, basically a Herodian princess, uh, during this entire time. And in fact, even after the war, took her back to Rome to be hope, in the hope that she would become his life consort, even when he eventually became emperor. It didn't happen that way, because the Senate stopped it. But there was that going on. Titus is second in command at the destruction of the temple was a Jewish guy called Tiberius Julius Alexander who had come from Alexandria and was a nephew of Philo who at a young age had thrown off his tullus and decided that he would go into the Roman army and climb to the rank. He became governor of Egypt and so on and he was there. He was at that war council of Titus where according to Josephus and I say according to Josephus, because we don't actually know, is that at that war council that took place on Mount Scopus, overlooking Jerusalem on the 8th of Av, the night before, the day before the destruction of the temple, 
they took a vote and they decided that they would not destroy the temple. And Titus voted not to destroy the temple. He didn't think that that was going to necessarily be one of his goals in subduing the people. Other were saying, unless you destroy the temple, you're not going to defeat them. Bottom line is, is that the, the taking of Jerusalem was an immensely complex battle that took place over weeks. We've actually covered that in the battle series. We looked at it in great detail. Immensely complex. Uh, but Jewish men and women, old and young, made the Romans fight for every single centimetre. It's only at the last minute that all of the different factions actually came together in unity to defend Jerusalem against the Romans, but that unity came too late. And the temple ended up getting burnt to the ground and Jerusalem was burnt. It was the fire was so hot it melt the stones and so on titus famously saying that he didn't want a victory wreath for that because it was clear that the jews had been abandoned by their own god all of the horrendous groundless hatred of all that factionalism that had built up over hundreds of years in the second in the, in the last phases of the second temple meant that the divine presence had clearly left the building sometime before and it was destroyed and then the romans spent the next two or three years mopping up all those freedom fighting factions and that's why you end up the first revolt ends in masada in the year 73 and Masada, of course, uh, by the Dead Sea, and uh, the Romans took it in a tremendous feat of engineering. But when they got to the top, everybody had killed themselves. And that was basically the end of the first great revolt. We now move into this intermediate phase between the destruction of Jerusalem and the Bar Kokhba revolt. And I'm seeing the time and I realize that I'm going to have to get a move on because we're still in this Tanaitic period and I'm still explaining this. Obviously here, during this period of late, late in the late in the first century, we start to see the real rise of Yavne, this uh, institution that had been established by Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai in the wake of the destruction. And that was tasked really with rebuilding Judaism, in a sense, without a temple. What does it look like? What's it going to be its basic modes of worship? How is this going to go? How are we going to apply all of these traditions that we've received, these oral Torah traditions? How are we going to apply this in a world that looks totally different to us in terms of our cultural and religious institutions? And there are great rabbis at Yavne, whether we're talking about uh, Rabban Gamliel, Rabbi Yeshua ben Hananya, Rabbi Elazar ben Hurkinus, all of these great rabbis who reset, if you like, Judaism, reprogrammed it going forward. <laughs> because Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai had made the very succinct point that Judaism does not belong in a building. Uh, we have a God, we, have, uh, we are a people, we have a Torah, we have a land. And the only thing that's going to enable Jewish survival is Jewish education. And that is what is the primary focus of Yavne, is to educate and inspire a new generations going forward. One of the great hallmarks, of, one of the great outcomes of Yavne, of course, was the education and rise of an extraordinary individual that turned up to study at Yavne already as a mature man, and very quickly became effectively the spiritual leader of that entire generation. And that, of course, is Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva's personality is dominant over this entire 
period between the uh, destruction of the temple uh, when he would have still been an illiterate shepherd. Uh, by the time we get to here, but to the 120s, uh, and the Emperor Hadrian begins his persecutions, uh, Rabbi Akiva is already uh, 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 overwhelmingly the great spiritual leader of the Jewish people. And it's always remarkable, it's always remarkable to remind ourselves what that means. Because here is a man that until the age of 40 did not know Aleph Bet. And so what that means for us is that it is never too late to learn, and not only to learn, but to learn and become uh, a leader of tremendous uh, depth and wisdom and inspiration. So, however, uh, Hadrian... See, some, some historians have said that really the whole business with Hadrian started because he was actually initially nice to Jews and we mistook that as a sign that he was going to let us rebuild the temple. And when he didn't, uh, relations turned sour. No one's really sure why Hadrian and the Jewish world fell out, but fall out they did. And he went on to become this major anti-Semite. Once again, very similar, I mean, an echo really of what we looked at last week with Antiochus IV. Yeah? I don't have a personal problem with Jews. Some of my best friends are Jews. I have a problem with Judaism and Jewish spirituality. And in this famous series of the decrees and the Hadrianic persecutions, he set about trying to eradicate Judaism. And of course, that meant total ban on circumcision under pain of death, total ban on observance of Shabbat under pain of death. And it was, of course, the third teaching, no, the third decree, so the third decree, no public teaching of Torah that caused Rabbi Akiva to say, that's it, we can't live like that. And he backed the freedom fighter Bar Kokhba, and Bar Kokhba started having initial successes just like the previous revolt. And he carved out a shtickle Medina for himself. He got a bit of a state around Jerusalem, minting coins, uh, sending letters going, I, President Bar Kokhba, and so on. <coughs> and Hadrian was having none of it. And Hadrian sent an enormous uh, army, enormous army from all over the empire to quash that rebellion uh, because this is already the Jews' third revolt in a century. This can't go on. And uh, that rebellion, tragically, after really just an independent state for around three years, not a big state, just Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, but that came to an end, as did the whole of this great revolt under Bar Kokhba, come to an end where? Betar. It's just southwest of Jerusalem. And that is the end. That is the end of any thoughts of Jewish sovereignty in Judea for the next 1800 years. That was the absolute crushing defeat from which it took us nearly two millennia to recover. Hadrian said, as the Romans could say, we're going to so wipe these people out that we're, not, we're going to even change the name of the place. Oh, what shall we call it? Shall we call it Southern Syria? No. Shall we call it Northern Egypt? No. I know. Let's call it 
under the Jews' own traditional enemies from the Bible, and the Romans had read the Bible, because there it was in Greek, they said, oh, we're going to call this Palestina. Palestina. Or Palestine. After the Jews' traditional enemies from the Bible, the Philistines. And so we should always remember that, that, that the land of Israel became known as Palestine, really as part of Hadrian's anti-Semitic push to completely disenfranchise the Jewish people. He changed the name of Jerusalem to Iolia Capitolina, turned it into a pagan city, big temple to Jupiter. It was, he also went around, took all the great sages, all the leading figures of the, Pharisee, of the rabbis that he could find, and he uh, killed them in the most horrible and gruesome and torturous ways, including Rabbi Akiva, including a great many others. A lot of rabbis went into hiding as well, uh, but this was a very, very dark period in Jewish history. And yet, and yet, such was the strength and such was the power of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai's uh, discussion with Vespasian that established Yavna, that gave rise to figures like Rabbi Akiva, that after the Hadrianic persecutions, when Hadrian himself eventually died, and things calmed down, and other emperors came to the throne, like Marcus Aurelius and Antoninus Pius, who didn't have Hadrian's problem with the Jews, and the, these rabbinic leaders, the students, the generation here, this is the generation of the students of Rabbi Akiva who were able to come out of hiding and once again re-inspire the people, lead the people spiritually, transmit the Torah and so on. And we know all of uh, those students, uh, well, not all of them, but we know the most famous ones, for example, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon, that's Shimon Bar Yochai, Rabbi Yosei. The figures like these were immensely important in collating all of the great traditions and eventually, eventually, those traditions became codified under a figure that really crowns this era called Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, because he was a descendant of the house of Hillel, of the royal lineage of Davidic descent. So he was called Hanasi, and he took all of the great drafts that had been made of the Oral Torah. The Oral Torah had never been written down. It had always been communicated, as the name suggests, orally. Father to son, mother to daughter, teacher to pupil. But eventually, under the threat of the dispersal of the Jewish people, it was realized that it's not ideal because the perfect system is that we have the written Torah and it's applied orally and dynamically in every situation. But we're going to have to write this down now. And they wrote it down according to topics in an incredible document. People that real people go, oh, the Mishnah. And they don't, the Mishnah is a phenomenal document because, and one of the Jewish world's greatest contributions to, to, to world legal and spiritual culture, the Mishnah. Thousands and thousands of tiny paragraphs of transmitted principles and cases of how the law, of how the Torah is applied in every single situation, divided up into topics. And it always amazes me, and I've said this before, but people don't realize that 90, more than 90% of the world's population at this stage 
are still fundamentally illiterate. And yet the Jewish people who by now still have 100% literacy because of the great edicts of Yavna and so on, that all Jewish children from the age of six must have an education, everybody could read and they were able to produce a document that is still today studied. And it is still a shining example of, of legal and spiritual codification. I can't go on about, and it was done in Hebrew, uh, in a <laughs> beautiful Hebrew. This was an immensely important document. If you are a rabbi that is quoted in the Mishnah, which means that you lived sometime from round about a few decades before zero up to here through any of these periods, and a teaching is said in your name in the Mishnah because you're the one who transmitted it to the next generation, you are called a Tana. So if you are a rabbi mentioned in the Mishnah, you are a Tana. And that is why this period is called the Tanaitic. From 0 to 200 is the Tanaitic period. It is the first phase of the Talmudic that creates the Mishnah. Always remember that despite all of these incredibly difficult events, and I know that tonight... I'm going to remember events I didn't talk about and go, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't say that. But all of these events are kind of, well, none of them are unimportant. But they all take a kind of background to what's really going on. And what's really going on is the transmission of Torah. Because that is the key, the key, the key to the continuum of the Jewish people. Jewish education in Torah and transmitting that awareness of God and that entire moral dimension and ethical dimension to life, uh, which is the hallmark of the Jewish people through history. And so by the time we get to here, we produce the Mishnah. If you're mentioned in the Mishnah, your title for the most part would be Rabbi. So for example, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon. Yep. Rabbi Lazar, Rabbi Yehoshua, Rabbi Akiva. Sometimes you might find people without any title, like Hillel. That's an even higher level that we won't go into that now for mystical reasons. But I'm going to now wipe this out because I'm going, we're going to zoom in on the next 300 years of the Talmudic, which is going to take us from 200 to 500. <laughs> uh, let's call that 300. Let's call this 400. All right. W one of the easiest ways uh, to understand the shift from the Tanaitic to the Amoraic, is to realize that you've got to cut off the Mishnah somewhere. Yep. You've got to say at some point, well, we're putting out the Mishnah, and that's it. If you made it into the Mishnah, you're one of the Tanaim. But naturally, there were people who were very, very great and wise, who were just a little bit young to crack it into the Mishnah. 
but they were still huge. Had the Mishnah, had the Tanitic project kept going, they for sure would have been mentioned there, but they just had to produce it sometime. And probably the great, not probably, definitely the greatest of that next generation, of that generation Z, that just missed out on being in the, uh, in the Mishnah, the greatest of those who had actually, a guy who had actually come from Babylon to study at the feet of Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi, is an individual called Abba Aricha. Abba Aricha. And Abba Aricha, following the publication of the Mishnah, took the Mishnah and went with it back to Babylon. By this time, it's called Babylonia. He went there with the Mishnah. Now, Babylonia, by this time, which had not undergone all of the horrendous things that had happened in Judea, and had been kind of tucked away in the relative safety of the Persian Empire, not entirely safe, but relatively speaking, had managed to thrive and grow and had its own dynamic centers. They had a kind of a system where they would learn the Torah according to what they called the Sidra, which means that they would have the weekly reading of the Torah and whatever came up in the weekly reading of the Torah, they would discuss in depth but together with all of its oral Torah um, discussions and so on. Abba Aricha, who we know, who we know in Jewish history more famously as Rav, arrived in Babylonia at this time and brought with him effectively a new educational technology called the Mishnah. We're now going to learn the oral Torah according to topics. And he established the great academy of Surah and his contemporary Shmuel, who was the, in Babylonia uh, at Nahardea, and then eventually Rav Yehuda establishes Pumbadita. So all of these great academies, that we're going to look at a little bit more next week in the Gonic period, but they all get founded around this time in Babylonia. And what they're doing at these academies is that they are developing over the course of the next few centuries an in-depth analytic study and exploration of the Mishnah. Because not only did the Mishnah come out, we have other huge documents of materials such as the Tosefta and the Brita, which are even bigger than the Mishnah, and all many, many other thousands and thousands of recorded traditions that need to be compared against the Mishnah and exactly what cases they're talking about as they become applied in courts and so on. Uh, all of that discussion is eventually going to be called the Gemara. And of course, lots of good stories are told. And what the Gemara is doing is it's trying to unpack the Mishnah, look for its underlying principles, apply it to new circumstances, look for what might be differences between the different teachings that they get from different rabbis, compare Mishnah to each other, compare them to Brighter, compare them to Receptor, compare them to what they've told or what, what they've heard before. 
all of that discussion, which very, very rarely comes to conclusion on any one thing, but unpacks everything that has to do with the Mishnah and forms the basis of all of rabbinic Judaism going forward. That is known as the, that discussion is known as the Gemara. And we know the equation. Yep, the equation is Mishnah plus Gemara equals Talmud. And of course, we have two Talmuds. We have two Talmuds because we have the same Mishnah. But the same Mishnah was studied here in the land of Israel, what is now Palestine, and in Babylonia. Same Mishnah, but two different conversations about that Mishnah, with a lot of overlap, two different conversations, therefore ending up in two Talmuds, a Jerusalem or Palestinian Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. But that story is going to go on right until the end of this period. We just need to look at a few other things that are going on as well. I mean, the... the uh, Isn't yeah, yeah, it's about a 120-year difference between the end of the uh, Palestinian and the end and, and the Babylonian. I'm going to get onto that in a moment. So you continue with the Babylonian Amoraim, I mean, and, but also it happens in sync. So you've got Rav Yochanan in the land of Israel and Rav Huna in Babylonia. You, then you've got uh, great figures like uh, Abaya and Rava and Ravashi and Ravina. And all of these people are in Babylonia creating this incredible edifice called the Gemara, which all of subsequent rabbinic Judaism relies on for mi mining it for information and principles and applications and so on. But I've got to, I, 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 I want to I wanna just uh, move out to look at a couple of things because um, it's important for us to embed this in world history. Now, I mean, uh, we just mentioned the fact that the Jerusalem, what, what's called the Talmud Yerushalmi, the Jerusalem Talmud, is really is really finishing up around here, and the Babylonian Talmud finishes here because after this point life in the land of Israel became very very restricted and very difficult and almost untenable on a flourishing intellectual level whereas in Babylonia it was able to continue for quite some time Babylonia of course and the whole Persian Empire remember that we have we have different distinct zones so this is going to be the Roman Empire but this is the Persian, uh, Persian Empire. The Persian Empire had undergone a Sassanid revolution uh, during the third century here. Uh, differing relations with the Jewish communities, but overall, no one was at this point trying to destroy the Jewish communities of Babylonia and they were able to thrive. But here, it was getting very, very difficult the further we went on and we now actually have to explore why that is. And so really we've got to go back to the early Tanaitic period. We have got to go back to the chart that I've wiped off the board. And we have to look at around about the year 30. And we have to have a look in the Roman province of the Galilee. You know, even Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai spent quite a few decades of his early career in the Galil, where he was running around uh, telling, trying to explain to people that <laughs> that there is more to Judaism than just waiting for the Mashiach. And there is more to Judaism than just some kind of apocalyptic expectation. The Galilee, for some reason, was a powder keg of messianic tension. And 
within that powder keg and from that powder keg, there emerges an individual, a young Jewish man who ends up having an encounter with the Romans. And uh, as so often happens to young men who have encounters with the Romans, who believe that they might be the Messiah, whose followers think they might be a bit special, and he's not the only one. It happened to a few different young Jewish boys and girls. They end up getting killed. Now, we have to realize that for the first few decades, uh, the early Christians were basically Jews. They were a sect of Judaism, which we call the Nazarenes, who were for the most part observant Jews. They kept Shabbat, they kept Kashrut, but they believed that uh, the, uh, Jesus was their Messiah. And that all changed really in the 60s of the first century with a figure like Paul, because Paul was able to argue very successfully to the Gentiles, look, you've already seen that the uh, Jewish religion, basically, and the, the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant with the God of Israel is far superior to anything you've seen in the pagan world, morally, ethically, legally, spiritually. But I know what troubles you, he says. What troubles you about all that is all of those commandments you have to keep. And you know, even if you're okay with that, you know the one that's bothering you. And that, of course, is circumcision. So it's really Paul who turns the entire thing around saying, if you believe in Jesus, I'm offering you the chance to partake in the covenantal relationship with the God of Israel without having to keep any of the commandments and without having to circumcise yourself. You get all the benefits. It's a very seductive idea. And, but still... Christianity for the first couple of centuries of his existence was very much a persecuted religion within the Roman Empire. And we were doing, the Jewish people themselves were doing a lot of the persecuting. But that all changed around here. And that changed here because Constantine, the Roman Emperor Constantine, converted to Christianity. And that made Christianity very complex summary that is it's a huge topic but i've just summarized it he basically converts and that means that not only i mean at first christianity then becomes tolerated but then it even actually becomes the official religion of rome that's not good news for the jews and then the tables are turned there was a small window in the middle of the 300s a miraculously small window in which an emperor came to the throne called julian you familiar with Julian, Julian the Apostate, who said, I'm not a Christian, I'm a pagan, and I like pagans, and I don't like Christians, but I tell you what, I like Jews, and if there's one way I can really, really annoy the Christians, it's by letting the Jews rebuild their temple. So he announces that he's going to allow the Jews to rebuild the temple in the middle of the 300s. And so a lot of people went back and started trying to rebuild it, but that project was not successful for all sorts of crazy reasons, if you want to go into that. Julian died not long after, and it went back to all the Christian rulers with increased persecutions for the Jews and so on. So interestingly enough, and I'm going to point to this, I'm going to highlight this, interestingly enough, Julian uh, was very friendly with one of the great leaders of Babylonian Jewry, 
an exilarch, one of the house of David, one of the leaders of the, of the Jewish people around about this time called Hillel. Obviously not the Hillel from much earlier, but a descendant, someone we call Hillel II of Babylonia. And uh, Hillel II is an extremely interesting figure in Jewish history because he is the one who really establishes following pretty much following Julian and all the different persecutions that were happening uh, right around the Jewish world, realized that it was going to be increasingly untenable for Jews anywhere to rely on the land of Israel for the pronouncement of the calendar. Now today, we have our calendars nicely laid out. No one's running around going, oh, I'm going to have to write to the rabbis in Israel and ask them when Rosh Hashanah is this year. We just look up the calendar. That wasn't always the case until here. They were dependent on the festivals and the calendar being announced from Israel. So Hillel II establishes a calendar that is going to be the calendar going forward forever so that you will always know when Pesach is going to be, when Rosh Hashanah is going to be, and so on. He basically established that there would be a 19-year cycle uh, and there would be seven leap years every 19-year cycle that would keep the seasons and the festivals aligned. Uh, a number of historians will tell you that that wasn't really set in stone until the 900s under Sa'aja Gaon, when we get the kind of even more precise calendar that we have now. But Hillel II certainly determined the basis of it. And that's an interesting point in Jewish history because it kind of weans the diaspora off its dependence on whatever was happening in the land of Israel. And the land of Israel itself was coming under increasing pressure as a result of Christian edicts and so on. It is round about this time that we're going to see the Roman Empire itself split in two. This is a very, very important moment. There's Italy, there's Greece, there's Turkey. And the this is going to become the Western Roman Empire and this is going to become the Eastern Roman Empire. And the Eastern Roman Empire is going to take on the fancy brand name of... Coles, did you say? <laughs> What's it going to be called? Byzantium. Byzantium. Very good. <laughs> I really thought you said Coles. <laughs> yes, Coles, Woolworth. Now, so Byzantium... Uh, and this is, we're just going to call this the Western Roman Empire. And so it is during the course of the following century that all of these uh, tribes in the north, the Vandals, the Visigoths, and the Goths, and so on, eventually all these European tribes uh, will start uh, making incursions into the Roman Empire. And eventually, by the time you get to, say, a year like 475 is the year where most historians would basically mark off the ultimate fall of Rome. In other words, Rome is sacked and it falls and that is the end of the Western Roman Empire. It's going to get plunged into what we now call the Dark Ages. And over the course of the next few centuries, that's going to evolve into Christian Europe. But for now, it's just game over for the Western Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire, now called Byzantium, continues and is a very uh, powerful in its own way uh, and uh, very religious Christian empire.
Sorry? Uh, well, the 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 uh, the, um, the framework for the split had already happened because Constantine had made a new capital city for the Roman Empire here called Constantinople, Constantinople of course, and uh, so the framework was already there. But the really uh, the really decisive split yeah happens towards the end of the fourth century. Um, so. We need to understand the Amoraic period because uh, there are a number of different... Uh, that's all going on within the Roman Empire uh, and the land of Israel is under the control of the Roman Empire. So the worse it gets for Jews generally because of the new the rise of Christianity, the more difficult it is to get to get into flourishing intellectual Jewish life in the land of Israel. Which Roman Empire is it under? It's, under, it's in Byzantium it's by this stage. Yes, okay. Of course, it's in the east. It's in the east. Uh, and we're going to see that, in fact, in the next couple of centuries after this, it's going to become a football between the competing powers here because this is the Persian Empire and the Persian Empire is going through its own dynastic upheavals and its own religious revolutions. The prophet money, the rise of Manichaeism, all of these minor revolutions that happen within Zoroastrianism. Remember, Zoroastrianism is the primary religion of the Sassanid Persian Empire. The whole uh, fire worship, and uh, there are other ideas that are floating around. During this time, by the way, and I, I'm glad I just thought of this, during this time, uh, and it's going to be important to remember this, uh, I'm, I'm going to mention this again next week because it's interesting background, but I'll mention it here because it belongs around here, is that there's, there's Arabia, yep, Saudi Arabia today. So a kingdom here called the Himurite Kingdom becomes Jewish. Becoming Jewish was seen as sometimes a useful exercise if you are trying to carve out uh, some kind of religious political niche for your people that is distinct from what's going on around it. So the Himurite kingdom is running around here. That's going to be an interesting background to the rise of Islam next week and so on. Uh, but for the most part, uh, Jewish life in Babylonia continues until the end of, the, continues without too much impediment until the end of the 5th century, when we get some very, very severe Persian rulers who uh, wage effective war against, uh, against Judaism and against Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders uh, decide to, well, create their own state in the city of Mahoza, as an example, um, towards the end, uh, the end of the 5th century. Uh, the Persian emperors react to that. So life was not always that calm and in fact it got so bad that uh, by the end of here we see them driving into a new phase of Jewish history and uh, we effectively have to seal uh, the end of the Babylonian Talmud because it's not tenable to keep the yeshivot open and once again just like the Mishnah and just like the Jerusalem Talmud we need to kind of finalize this so that we can you know send it out to the world as a as, uh, as not a finished document, but as a picture of what this entire spiritual discussion had been over the last few hundred years in, uh, in Babylonia. Uh, but make no mistake that, 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 that it is the creation of the Babylonian Talmud that is the foundation of what we call Judaism today. And that itself has its foundation in the Mishnah, and the Mishnah has its foundation in the establishment of the schools of Yavna, uh, due to the incredible foresight of the spiritual leaders 
of the Jewish people at the time of the Roman invasions during all of those terrible events of the revolts. Uh, I, I think I've more or less covered what I want to in this particular talk tonight. There are things that I haven't said that I will regret not having said. I do want to also just make a mention of the fact that during this period, we are, during this entire time, we are combating some of the most difficult things that the Jewish people have ever had to go through. We came very, very close to extinction several times. And yet when you stand back and you look at how it's embedded in world history and you stand back, you can't help but be amazed at what we did produce during this period as a result of, but also despite, those incredible persecutions. We produced the Mishnah, which is an, a, 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 a priceless achievement uh, in terms of what it gave the Jewish people going forward. But we also produced the Talmud coming out of it. We also produced an entire genre of homiletic literature called the Midrash. Whereas the Mishnah and the, most of the Gemara might deal mostly with uh, legalistic uh, discussions, the Midrash deals with all of the interpretations of the written Torah that deal uh, with all the great ideas and spiritual values of the Jewish people in numerous interpretations and stories, filling in all of the gaps in the written Torah based on ancient, ancient traditions that had been passed down for many, many generations, and also some new and innovative insights and interpretations that were constantly bubbling up during this period. The great compilations of Midrash that came out of the land of Israel uh, were kind of coming out at the same time as the Jerusalem, well, started around the time of the Jerusalem Talmud, because there seemed to be a distinction between those two, whereas the Babylonian Talmud didn't create a separate Midrash or a separate Agadita. They put it all together into the Babylonian Talmud. That's why in the Babylonian Talmud, you can be in the middle of a very, very complex dis legal discussion, and all of a sudden it will break into the wildest stories and narratives for pages that you're going, well, why, where did that come from? And then suddenly go back into the legal argument. I'm not going to go, those, I mean, it's not my job right now to go into um, completely explaining the whole Talmud on one foot. We might actually do that in, in another talk. But uh, it is an indispensable discussion. So that's emerging. But at the same time, as all of that is coming out, we are also having to battle numerous intellectual challenges. We are fighting a frontline intellectual war during this period against ideas that are arising in the world that are going to change the world. Ideas such as Gnosticism. Now when we think of Gnosticism, Gnosticism is not a single idea. Uh, it's, it's, not a, it's not a single body of thought. Gnosticism is a thought stream, a movement that comes in and out of many, many different religions and schools of thought. We even saw a return of Gnosticism at the end of the 20th century, in the beginning of the 21st, in popular culture. One of the aspects of Gnosticism is that the war is, that the world is a great war between good and evil, between the forces of light and the forces of darkness. Humanity is the 
is the battleground of that. And in fact, that there are, we're not even sure who's going to win that. It's not, Gnosticism does not see evil as an agency of God the way Judaism does. Gnosticism sees evil as its own agency, fighting a war against the forces of light. Uh, so Gnosticism, uh, and Gnosticism also argues for an escape away from material existence. It, it's, it, it, I mean, against procreation, against children, against materiality. Judaism, of course, has always sought this incredible balance between the spiritual and the material. So we're fighting Gnosticism. We're fighting Neoplatonism. Well, not so much fighting Neoplatonism, we're kind of absorbing Neoplatonism, which is coming from the great uh, schools of philosophy of Plato, showing the different ways in which uh, uh, the, the, the divine and the world are connected through great chains of being and emanations. A lot of that kind of material didn't get so much fought against, it got adapted to into Jewish sources. Manichaeism, which also sees the world as a fight between two fundamental forces. Uh, and of course, uh, we're fighting Zoroastrianism as an ideology, and we are fighting our old uh, brethren, the Christians, uh, on the intellectual front about the truths of their religion. Remember that it was Constantine here who called for the Council of Nicaea in 325 that established the foundational principles of Christianity and so on. So this entire period, right around the Jewish world, because we're also seeing at this particular time, we're starting to see, once we get to the, uh, the 400s, we're starting to see, from our perspective, right, who knows what we would have seen had we been living there at the time, but from our perspective, we're now starting to see Jewish communities springing up in very far-fung places yep, uh, that the Roman Empire had reached. So even in places like that are today northern Germany, we're finding excavations of mikvahs and we're finding foundations of Jewish communities as far as that, because wherever the Roman Empire went, Jews went with them in search of trade and in search of other opportunities such as just a quiet life or whatever, and so Jewish communities are emerging there. What about in Africa, were the Jews? Oh, so there are, I mean, sometimes it might come down to how you define that, but there are definitely Jewish communities and Jewish effectively. How, how far into Africa do you want? I mean, in Ethiopia, of course, there are um, communities that we would probably recognize as, as Jewish. Certainly there were Jewish communities right throughout the Arabian Peninsula, yeah. and they were springing over, spilling over into the... Uh, into, into the uh, Asokan entities in, in Africa and so on. It's a good question. It requires its own kind of study. Um, there, are even, there are even possibly Jewish communities uh, even further east than Persia uh, in Afghanistan and so on, even by this time. But the center of the Jewish world, by the time we finish this period, the center of the Jewish world is definitively still Babylonia. The land of Israel is almost off limits to us, but we have very, very large numbers of Jews in Babylonia. We have uh, profoundly important institutions. Yes, it got a little bit hairy uh, towards the end of the 5th century, but we're about to see a revival of Babylonian Jewry. Then they've got the numbers, they've got the, the critical mass, and they've got the leadership to do it. So the summary is that all of this, all of this is, here the takeaway is, I'm going to, in the last minute, I'm going to do the big takeaway 
And that is, uh, before I have the agony of remembering what I didn't talk about, but is there anything you can think of that I didn't talk about in the Talmudic period? And the Talmudic period goes from 0 to 500. 1, 2, 3, 4. And it is divided up into two subsets. The first is the Tanaitic, which produces the Mishnah. And the second is the Amoraic period, which produces the Gemara. Where are we? The Gemara. And together, they equal the Talmud. And if we can understand that, if we can understand how these terrible events here propelled the Jewish people into their destiny with history, that we were going to undergo a profound exile and a profound dispersal, but that we were given and, and, and inspired to have uh, these incredible spiritual assets that were going, such as the Mishnah, that were going to uh, enable us to move forward. The Mishnah and the Midrash, and above all, the inspiration of great leaders who literally sacrificed their own lives, that that continuum of the Jewish people can stay in the world and that we can fulfill our destiny in the world. And I thank you for listening to all that. I look forward to seeing you again next week when we will be discussing the next 500 years of absolute damage and it's going to get very very interesting so um, i'm hoping that you will uh, join me for that thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed the talk for episode notes and transcripts or to learn more about david's next classes and projects visit davidsolomon.online you can also find david on instagram or facebook thank you we hope to see you again soon